welcome and uh, happy Father's Day once again. Uh, I can't say enough. Also, uh, for example, uh, we uh, had one of those weeks that I'm sure many of you dads have had uh, where our kids are, are being adventurous and playful. And one of them um, actually did something just totally naughty and, and totally out of a question. So Tara sent her to a room and in the process, uh, she turned around and said, Mommy, I don't think I want you here anymore. And, um, you know, as, as they've said in the past, which is bad, but one of us. Um, anyway, so, uh, so Tara called me and said, look, when, she, when you get home, you're going to have to go up and speak to her and have a conversation with her. And I said, you know what? I'm a pastor. I'm a man full of the wisdom of God. I, uh, I, you know, I handle meetings every day. This is, this is, I've got this. Don't worry. I've nailed this. This is fine. So I got home and uh, I eventually went upstairs and I sat down next to this girl. This daughter, I wouldn't name her for, for that. Um, I sat down and just faced her, looked her in the eyes. I was like, I got this, I got this. And I said, you know, if you, uh, if you say things like you don't want mummy, you know, what are you going to do? You're not going to have a mummy around. And, and that would be really sad, won't it? I mean, you'll just have dad. Is that enough? And then suddenly the tears started filling her eyes. And I thought, yes, I've done it. I've got it. I've got a cross. And then she started to weep a little bit. And she goes, no, no, we can't do that, daddy. You can't cook. <laughs> Who's going to feed us? I was like, okay, just let it process. And then she goes, and you only know two hairstyles. <laughs> and I was like, okay, this, this isn't really going where I thought it was going. And then, uh, then she still had tears in her eyes and she said, and, then, and what is it else you can't do? <laughs> At this moment, I said, look, I said, I said look, look, you know, it's, it's really, this is about you, not about me. We'll talk about my inadequacies as a father another time. But, <laughs> but it, suffice it to say, she went down very quickly and apologized to her mother. So uh, it worked. That's the key thing. Uh, I, I say that story, just a reality. But also, if you're a new dad, welcome to your future. Um, <laughs> let me just pray and I'll jump in. Uh, Lord, I want to say, thankfully, before I'm a father... I'm a son. And if I'm absolutely honest, I'm still trying to get my head around that. That seems such a huge thing. But I know it is good. I know that I'm loved before I have done anything. And now, Father, as you've shown me your heart in preparation for this talk, would you give me the words to share what I've seen? And I ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, so Mark started a great series last week, and he did a phenomenal job. Uh, it is a great podcast uh, to listen to, but I just love the response of us as a church, of just going and responding to this call. And the call is this call to holiness. Now, I want you to take a deep breath first and foremost, because absolutely one of the things that Mark said is being holy, as high and superfluous as that sounds, being holy is not about being perfect. It's about being set apart. And I love this phrase he said. He said, before we're ever called to be good, we're called to be holy. I just found that so free and it's so powerful as I said. Before we're ever called to be good, we're called to be holy. Set apart for God to be in the world, but not the same as everything that's going on us, around us. To be different. And that's the name of the series. You know, a great way to think about this is an Olympic competitor. I would use a World Cup example, but I can't think of any of these ones. A world, an Olympic competitor, okay? So they, they can go to work. They can hang out with their friends, go out for meals. They can, uh, they can do all the things. They can have families. On many ways, they look the same as every other person. But they have a different goal, a different focus, a different intention. And that difference 
orientates the way that they, they spend their resources, they spend their time, the, the choices they make, what they eat, what they don't eat. That difference is what changes and transforms them into a different person. They may look the same, but what they do is different. And that's how what we're called to be. We're called to be set apart for something different. You know, something that sets apart Jesus' followers, Christians, us, is, is this idea of the, of the hope that we have. The hope that we have. And that's what I want to talk about on today is hope. What is the hope that Jesus has given us that we have? You see, our understanding of hope is so limited. It's, it doesn't really do the term itself justice. We kind of think of it about this idea of uncertainty. You know, I hope that you're well, as I put in many emails. I genuinely mean it, I think. I hope you're well with a bit of uncertainty. You know, you come across someone who's ill, and I hope you feel better soon, because there's nothing I can do. And, uh, and that favorite one we've all had, I really hope this works. Um, and there's a slight air of uncertainty about hope. It feels like the right way thing to say, but it's nothing more than an optimistic guess. But the biblical definition of hope is this life changing certainty. There's something that hasn't happened yet will definitely will happen. In Hebrews 11 it says this, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. You know, a great example of this is imagine being in a massive battle. Uh, If you've watched Game of Thrones, end of season six does a great picture of this. Let me just try and describe it. Imagine being in a battle. You can see arrows flying. You can see The enemy just crushing down on you. And to the left of you and to the right of you, all of your allies, all of your friends are falling. This is no longer about whether we're going to win the battle. This is about whether I'm going to survive this. Everything seems lost. Everything seems hopeless. There is no way out. And you are crushed under the weight of that. But then suddenly you hear a sound. You hear a sound. And it's just over the other side of the hill. And it's the sound of chanting. It's the sound of a mass of people. It's the sound of music. It's the sound of allies about to cross the, cross the hill and about to come and save the day. You know with certainty that when they get here, the victory is yours. The survival will be over. They're not on the battlefield yet. They're not engaged yet. It's still you and your sword. You're still trying to make it happen. But you know something is transformed inside. You have a certainty that this is not the end. That's what hope is. That's what genuine hope is. It transforms the way you think. It's amazing. You can be in that battle losing. As soon as you sound, that sound uh, is made, that trumpet sounds, the attitude that you have, the energy you have in that battlefield is completely changed, completely transformed. You're connecting with the hope. You're connecting with a future that's not quite here yet. You see, we underestimate, massively underestimate, how much our future drives our present lives. We underestimate how much our believed-in future, what we believe is going to happen, what we think is the future, how much that determines how we live today, how we treat other people, how we face our circumstances, and how we endure suffering. If we believe a certain future, we'll face today with a different reality. A guy called Viktor Frankl, a great guy, he's an Austrian um, psychiatrist and Holocaust survivor. And he wrote a book, and he wrote on his experiences in a concentration camp. And one thing he noticed was that prisoners of war who had hope stayed strong. They literally endured if they had hope. But if a prisoner lost their faith, they lost their future. They were doomed you know, he tells a story of one particular friend he had who, uh, who had a dream, a very vivid dream. And his dream was basically the idea that on the 30th of March, this war would be over and they'd be set free. 
Well, he went around the camp. He had great hope, great enthusiasm. March the 30th, God has spoken to me. This is going to happen. Anyway, as the day drew closer, it became more and more obvious that that wasn't going to be the case. On the 29th of March, the day before his dream was supposed to happen, he fell down with a fever, a temperature. On the 30th, the day it was supposed to happen, he lost consciousness. On the 31st of March, he died. For him, it was literally impossible to live without, uh, without hope. He was dead on the inside. He was dead on the outside. You literally cannot live without hope. You struggle mentally. You struggle physically. You struggle healthily without something to look forward to. In Proverbs, it says it. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. But this is the tension we face every single day as people, as humans. You see, we want to maintain hope. We want something to believe in. We want something to look forward to. And we need to hope. But what do you do when that hope fails? When it lets you down? When something is taken from you? When your believed in future seems impossible now? There's no way that that dream could happen. Or you're kept from the life that you dream of. What do you do when your hope dies? What do you do when your hope dies? Perhaps you know what I'm talking about. Perhaps something has come into mind. Maybe you had a friend and you just thought, this is the friend I've always been waiting for. This is the relationship that I've been longing for my entire life. And you pour everything into it. Every time they need something, you're there. But the moment you suddenly face something you can't handle alone, they're absolutely nowhere to be seen. They've let you down. And we do remember standing at the altar with that great joy on your face, that smile in your eyes, saying, till death do us part. But you only later discover, a few years later, that the other person actually meant, till I feel different about you, or till I find someone better. Or maybe you thought you'd have children by now. Or you didn't think you'd be single at this age. Or for years you've invested everything into your children and you had dreams and aspirations and hopes and, and everything planned out for them and you invested your time, your energy, your money, everything of your life into them. But somewhere along the way, they got caught up with the wrong crowd. And that person that you dreamed that they would become is looking more, more less and less possible. Perhaps you felt excited, enthused and energetic about starting your own business. And three years in... You're working more hours than you ever have. You're spending less time with your friends and you're arguing at home all the time and you're pretty much about to give up. Perhaps you had a promising athletic ability. I hope you could have been an amazing footballer or amazing gymnast or whatever it is when you were young, but then you, you got injured. You faced an injury and your dream was shattered. Or you find out you didn't, didn't get the grades that you expected and suddenly university or the plan that you had is starting to fall apart. Or maybe you noticed a lump, and then you had a diagnosis. And now all you can think about is the fact that you're not going to see your children get married or your grandkids as they grow up. You see, we want hope. We want something to look forward to, but the reality is hope sometimes disappoints. Hope sometimes dies. You see, we live our lives, we build our dreams on hope, but what do we do when our hope dies? Let me ask you a different question. It's changing tax slightly. What made the early Christians different? What made them so different, so contagious, so um, set apart from their counterparts, from their peers? You see, when the early Christians were torn away from their happy families, when they were torn away from their jobs, when they were thrown to the lions, not lumps, but lions at the time, and they faced certain death, 
Do you know how they reacted? They sung. I'm sure they weren't stoked by the idea of a lion about to pounce on them. It's not something you look forward to. But for some reason, in that situation, when they had lost everything, when their dreams were shattered, they were able to not just muster, but they had an overflow of song in their heart. Or maybe when they were being persecuted, and the sword, and any knock at the door could have been the knock to come and arrest them and, and kill them. When all of that, when they were discriminated against, when prices were much higher for them, when you know, in, instead of, uh, you know, they faced racism every day, injustice every day, when everything about their life seemed utterly unfair. And instead, they didn't get fought, they sucked into the cycle of vengeance and, you know, we're going to get our own way, we're going to fight with justice and, and you know, and, and basically take our vengeance out and, and win it over. Instead, they forgave their enemies and they prayed for them. They became the most generous, the most um, sacrificial, the most kindest people in the world, wherever they were, whether it was one of them or a thousand of them. And when there was a plague that swept across the entire Roman Empire, when people were fleeing for their lives, Christians, rather than going, well, I've got to save my family, I've got to save myself, I've got to save my future, they stayed. And while people were suffering, while they were ill, while they were dying, and all their family had left, there was Christians that were sitting beside their bedside, looking after them, caring for them, knowing that they were almost certainly going to die themselves. But they still showed utter kindness. Why were they more compassionate? Why were they more forgiving? Why were they more loving? Was it because they were just trying to be nice and good Christians because that's what it says we should do? I don't think you would sing in the face of death. I don't think you would love those who hate you. I don't think you would care for others if it meant that you were certainly going to suffer too. Unless something was different, unless you were set apart, unless you had a different future, unless you believed in a different future, unless they had a different hope. Viktor Frankl again, you know, he had to, he had to counsel a lot of people as they came to him in the, in the camp, and they would come saying, Doctor, how do I handle this situation? How do I face every day, death every single day and keep on going? How do I carry on living? And what he would tell people was this, life only has meaning if we have a hope and a meaning that even suffering and death cannot destroy. Well, you have to live for a hope that doesn't die. You have to have a living hope. A living hope. Now, we're going to put up on the screen 1 Peter 1. If you've got your Bibles, follow along because this is a great passage to bookmark and, and revisit. 1 Peter 1 verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter tells these early Christians that we are born into a living hope. But what does that mean? Verse 4. And into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. It's kept in heaven for you. You see, this living hope is something that can never perish. It is certain. It is guaranteed. It is kept. It is safe. It is utterly secure and out of reach of anyone or anything that could destroy or steal it. The interesting word in this passage is about the word inheritance. See, maybe you believe in heaven. 
Maybe you picture it as a wonderful place of, of consolation, you know, after suffering, suffering, difficult, enduring life, you've just barely got to the end of, you think that heaven is this place to set apart where you can just finally rest in peace. That's the hope, right? But Christianity is that suffering is just consoled for. Christianity believes and the hope is that suffering is completely undone. See, every tear is wiped away. Every hurt is healed. Every fear is destroyed and every limitation on your life is finally removed. You see, you were created to be more than you could ever thought possible. And when you die, you don't lose all your potential for life. You find it all. It's your inheritance. You see, when someone dies, we often say, they lived a good life, right? But as a Christian, we say, well, their life has just begun. Or maybe we say if they died a bit younger, they had their whole life ahead of them. They had so much potential. But as a Christian, we can say that there's finally nothing stopping them reaching that full potential that God has created them to live in. Heaven is not the, the inheritance. All that God has promised, we have not yet fully received. You see, you will be finally able to walk free, to walk in the body and the mind and the life that you've always intended to walk in until it is taken from you in this world. Heaven is when the world and everything in it, including you, is ultimately re recreated and renewed. You see, heaven isn't a place of consolation. It's a promise of restoration. Heaven isn't a, a place of cons a consolation. It's not just a pat on the back, well done, you've made it. It's a promise of restoration. It's when your life truly begins. It's when it all truly starts. And that's the inheritance that waits for us, that will never perish, that is kept safe for you. When we show people glimpses of what it is, when we pray for one another, when we do justice, there is so much more to come. It continues in this in verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while that you may have to, you have had to suffer all kinds of trials, these have come so that your faith of greater worth than the gold which perishes, even though refined by fire, your faith may be proved genuine. I don't know if you see that when you look at it, but we have re reason to rejoice, a promised salvation. But even so, we still have to suffer. Suffering is not a surprise to Christians. It's the broken world that we live in. It's the fact that people are not perfect. This place is not perfect. Do we check out? No. Do we stay connected? Yes. But do we place all our hope in it? No. You see, there's a purpose in our suffering. The suffering exposes your soul's foundation. And it's the source of your hope the suffering gets to. You see, if your hope is in something that will die, money, marriage, your career, your health, all good things. But if your hope, if your ultimate hope, if your absolute certainty in your future is based on that thing coming through, when suffering comes and your future is threatened, you'll be exposed. When that dream dies, you die. You have nothing left to hold on. But in the midst of suffering, God says this, I know that this hurts now. But I can see things coming that will destroy you if you stay where you are. You see, I want you to trust me. Your perspective is too short. But I can see everything. I can see things that you cannot. And I want what's best for you. I want you to be free because I have so much more for you. I'm testing your soul's foundation not to make your life horrible, but to ensure that you can enjoy those things and your hope doesn't die if it doesn't work out. 
But if your hope is in Christ, if you have a living hope, then nothing can touch it. You'll rejoice, you'll sing, you'll be quick to forgive, you'll show compassion because you're no longer looking for what you can get now because your future and everything that's in it is absolutely secure. And that's why I love this. In verse 7, it finishes with this. And your hope will result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So you probably read that the same way that I did when I first read it, which is, okay, that's great. You know, when we, when we get to the end, when our faith is short, you know, we'll be able to stand before Christ. And when he's revealed, you know, people of faith will give him praise and glory and honor. That sounds lovely. It sounds wonderful. Great worship. But that's not what it actually says. That's not what it actually means. It says your faith will result. Not your faith will lead you to, not your faith will move you to, not your faith will mark and will make you give him praise, honor, and glory. It says your faith will result in. You see, that is that you have been set apart with a certain hope that will result in your praise, in your honor, in your glory. I mean, that's pretty crazy, right? You see, praise, he boasts on you. You see, this is something we truly long for. This is something we crave, whether we admit it or not. The idea that someone praises us or gives us affirmation is so key. We had a a shooting connect group, and it's one of the most memorable groups we've ever had. When at the end of worship, Tara turned around and said, you know, I feel like God wants to just say to every single person in this room, well done. Not wait for you 20 years before you've achieved something or not, but well done. And so we just spent some time, we went around the room, we stared each and every single person, we got them to stand up and stared each and every single person in the eye, and we just said, well done. You've done so well, I'm so proud of you. And then we start to tear up, and then we went to the next person. I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you, as we stared them in the eye, And they would burst into tears. It was like filling their soul with something. And before we even got to the next person, just the expectation that someone was about to say something so affirming filled them with joy, filled them with with this emotion, this overwhelming sense. You see, he knows you. He's seen you. He says, I am proud of you. And this is not a nice compliment. Hey, nice car, nice haircut. Oh, you know, good work there. This is a life-given, soul-strengthening praise. I'm proud of you. Keep going. You're doing great. You're a wise woman. You're a good father. You say, but if you saw me, if you've really seen the things I've done, I think it was about three days ago, I, uh, I, I was wrong. I laid in bed longer than I should have. I should have been downstairs with the kids when they were up. It's just never a good thing to leave them by themselves, ever. <laughs> Maya, our youngest one, two-year-old, she came upstairs, climbed up the entire staircase, and said, Daddy! And I said, oh, gosh. And I sat up. Her hands were absolutely covered in chocolate. <laughs> like, she had got the Nutella pot and basically gone, mm-hmm. <laughs> down the dress as well. And I looked at her, and I was about to go, what have you done? And she goes, Daddy, are you proud of me? Because I didn't watch TV. (laughs) I don't know what I am. But I looked at her, this two-year-old looking in my eyes saying, are you proud of me? Are you proud of me? I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) But then I looked back at my two-year-old's eyes, and I said, I'm so proud of you. 
I'm going to have to clear up that chocolate. <laughs> I'm a bit heartbroken because I kind of wanted that. But I'm so proud of you. I'm so proud of you. I'm always proud of you. I'm your father. I'm always proud of you. You see, he has seen what you've done. He has seen what you're like. He saw you. I saw how you struggled, he says. I saw how you suffered. That wasn't fair. I never intended you to go through that. I saw that you tried your best and everyone called you a failure and everyone said you messed up, but I saw you and I'm so proud of you. So proud of you. That's the praise that we wait for. That's the praise that is on the lips of Jesus when we encounter him, when we meet him. And that's the praise that he's speaking over us right now, whether we can hear it or not. Honor, the only thing better than someone saying it to you directly to your face is if you hear that person you admire, that person you love, if you hear them, overhear them saying it to someone else, right? If uh, you know, there's someone you absolutely look up to, say like you, your boss or whatever it is, and you've been wanting to hear them say you've done a good job, and he's never said it to you, but then they turn around, and in the, in the meeting with the CEO, she, he says to her, you know, she did so well. That builds you up even more, because you know it's not fake. You know it's not just words. It's genuine. I've got, they've got real talent. I'm so proud of them. You beam. You feel honored. Well, God stands before the angels and says, have you seen my servant Job? Have you seen my son? Have you seen my daughter? Have you seen what they're like? They're amazing. Romans 5, 5 says this, and the hope does not put us to shame or disappoint because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. You see, the Holy Spirit sits with the Father and the Son and overhears their conversation Jesus turned around to the Father and said, have you seen them? Have you seen what they're like? And the Holy Spirit, not just words, but emotions, heartfelt transparency, just pours that back into you. And that love fills you up when you encounter the Holy Spirit. When you go home today and you eventually sort the rest of the things out and you sit there and you say, Father, show me how you feel about me. Holy Spirit, reveal yourself to me. That love pours in. And you know that you have a hope that does not disappoint, will never fail, because his affirmation, his praise, his honor is poured into you. And finally, glory. He gives you himself, his wonder, his glory. Our inheritance is the restoration of our lives to come. But what God's inheritance, what his most precious belonging is, it's just a wonder. It says this in Ephesians 1.18, I pray that the highs of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. You see, his glorious inheritance, if you read that, is you. His holy people, you are his inheritance. See, he owns all the stars, he owns everything in heaven, everything the sun has ever kissed, he's owned everything and belongs, everything belongs to him, the depths of the ocean, things we haven't even seen or discovered, all manner of things. He creates the most delicate flower. He fashions the most precious gem. He sets the mountain vista for us all to stand in awe of. But the most valuable thing to him, his most precious possession, is you. Do you want to know how I know that for sure? How I believe that? How I see that? You see, the whole universe belonged to God. 
But the one thing he didn't have before he went to the cross that he did have after the cross was you. You're the only reason he went to the cross. He had everything. He had everything. He lacked absolutely nothing but his inheritance, his glory, his most precious possession, you, was the thing he gave his life up for. He gave everything up for you. Such was his love for you. Such that you are inheritance. He gives you praise. He gives you honor. He gives you glory. You are called to new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. See, hope doesn't just follow him to the cross. Our hope continues through the resurrection. We have a hope that even suffering and death cannot, will not, and may never touch. There is nothing in this world that can take our hope from us. It is a living hope. With our living hope guaranteed and safe, we've become free in the present to be present. We've become holy, set apart. We've become different people. You see, you start to love other people like crazy because it doesn't matter if someone stops loving you because you hope, because you know that in Christ you are loved more than you could ever imagine than this person could ever give you back. You minister, you serve others like crazy, even when people take advantage of you, even when people treat you as they shouldn't. You don't do it to get back from someone. You don't need anything from anyone because you have more than you've ever wanted in your entire life that's given to you through Jesus. You forgive like crazy, even when others don't forgive you because you know how much you have been forgiven by the one who is, who knows you and is still proud of you. You pioneer like crazy. You try things like crazy. You succeed and fail like crazy because you know your affirmation, your love, your promise, your well done, your I'm proud of you doesn't come from other people around you but from God in heaven. And he says no matter how you do, you're always my son. You're always my daughter. You show kindness to bitter colleagues, bitter neighbors. Even though you've received no kindness in return, because you know that they are no different from you. They need hope. The only difference is their hope has died. But yours hasn't. Yours is untouchable. Would you mind standing? The band come up. You know, all of this is only possible if you ever live in hope. I've talked about it, I've referenced it, and I, that live in hope becomes tangible when you're filled with a love through the Holy Spirit. And do you need that living hope today? For some of you, the invitation today is that your days of disappointment are done. You've tried everything else and you've just been let down too many times. Well, try Jesus. See, his hope does not disappoint. I'm not saying this is easy. I'm not saying that the battles won't come. They will. But your hope lies in a different perspective. Even when everything around you is failing, you can hear the sound over the other side of the hill. You know that allies are coming. You know victory is guaranteed. And for many of you, you know Jesus. You know you want to know him. But if you're honest, you say, I've been distracted. I've got hurt too many times. Or maybe you'll say, you know, that's nice. But did you see that thing I did? He's not proud of me. He's probably disappointed in me. I should know better. I should try harder. But God says, I saw you. And yeah, there are things that I will help you clear up. 
But go on, ask me if I'm proud of you. Ask me if I'm proud of you. Because the absolute answer, the absolute certainty is that I will pour out my love through the Holy Spirit that you'll know, not just in words, but in heart, in truth, in spirit, that I am so, so proud of you. His call, his gifts are irrevocable. There is no mistake you could have made that will ever take his love from you. As we worship now, ask that question. Are you proud of me, God? Because I know the answer I'll give you. Let's worship.